Yeah. Wonderful. Well, it's great to ooh, be with you um, again. And uh, I know you've got me two weeks in a row. Well, okay, that's great. If, if that wasn't how you felt, I, I do think the, uh, that the box office are giving refunds if, uh, if you go and see them afterwards. Have you had a good week? Did you spend it enjoying God's propitiation to you? If you don't know what I'm talking about, then you're going to have to pick up last week's sermon uh, on our YouTube channel. Please go do that. All our sermons are on there, uh, and you can go and find out what on earth propitiation is all about. But trust me, it's a really, really good truth um, for us to, to know. And this week um, is our gift day, as you've been told many, many times. And um, I'm going to speak, and then after we're going to take up that really special offering, um, which is just our response to God's call for us to plant more churches. And I believe that the ultimate fruit of a healthy disciple will be more disciples. And I equally believe that the result of a healthy church will be more churches. Because healthy things reproduce. Um, and that's just how God has made it. It says that each will produce after its own kind. And so I believe that is uh, just a, a healthy model for us. And I believe too that whatever it is that you set your eyes on, you will naturally move towards. You know, like when we were at school, I don't know if they still, I think they do it now because I spoke to Josie actually during the week. When, when you're little kids and you're, you're in gym class and they put the bench down and you have to balance on the bench and walk along and your teacher tells you to fix your eyes on something on, on the wall and miraculously you can walk in a straight line if you do that. And I know that's still taught because Josie told me earlier in the week when I, when I spoke to her about it. And that is great when you want to walk in a straight line. But it's difficult sometimes if you want to change direction. And uh, I quickly actually learned about this when I learned to ride a motorbike. You see, if you approach a crossroads uh, on a motorbike, for example, when you actually pull away, even though you want to turn right, you pull away, you're, you're actually still moving forward in the direction you're facing. But what you have to do is you have to turn the handlebars slightly, you lean slightly, but most importantly, you have to fix your eyes on the point where you want to go. And if you don't, if you actually fix your eyes on the direction you're actually going when you pull away, you hit the curb and fall off. Ask me how I know. <laughs> but it's a strange thing. When you learn to ride a motorbike, you have to, you're, you're accelerating, you're pulling forward in the direction that you're facing, but you have to look where it is that you want to turn. And miraculously, when all of those things come together, you find yourself turning and going the right way. What you can't do is look at the direction you're actually going. And so on a day like today, when we're saying, look, we want to plant more churches, you might kind of get that feeling, well, where's that come from? This doesn't feel like the direction that we are currently facing. We've had our eyes fixed on a, a stationary point on the horizon right in front of us. Well, 
The reality is, is that we are turning and, and right at this point in time, we're still facing the direction that we were facing, but we're now choosing to look in a different direction. And part of what we're, we're bringing, the gifts that we're bringing today are going to help us lean, turn and accelerate into that bend. And if we keep our eyes fixed on what God's called us to do and don't suddenly look down at what's ahead, we won't hit the curb and fall off. Does that, make, does that make sense? So we're fixing our eyes not on where we were previously heading, but where we want to go. And I have to say, <laughs> gift days, speaking at gift days are always kind of hard to speak at, particularly if the topic that you've been given is money. Because it always seems like the purpose is to deliver some kind of rousing, inspirational talk that motivates you to part with your money. Now, I'm not saying I wouldn't like that to happen, um, but I don't want it to be because of my charisma or my ability to communicate or my ability to inspire to be the thing that motivates you today. The Apostle Paul says to a church in, in, in Corinth, which is just like ours, it was, it's just like a church, just like ours. And actually, if you read it in detail, you'll see it's just like ours. But he says this, in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Some translations say hilarious giver which I quite like, I must admit. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us, the apostles, will produce thanksgiving to God. So verse 7 says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. And this morning, I want it to be your heart that motivates you to give. Not because you feel any compulsion from the good-looking man on the stage. <laughs> Easy. <laughs> you see, later on in Paul's letter to uh, the, the church in Corinth, he says, For Christ's love compels us. And I want your love for Christ to compel you to give. I want... Christ's love for you to be the thing that motivates you to give. Now, I can teach, I'm pretty confident, I can teach from the Bible in a way that would overcome your every objection to why you don't choose to tithe your full 10%. I can reason from Scripture why you should give generously over and above that tithe. I can help you understand why it is we should give to the local church first before we fund other charities and organisations. 
I can demonstrate why we need funds for this evangelism and for church planting, but all that will do is give me the acceptance of your mind and maybe a measure of what's in your wallet. And neither of those things are bad, but what I want is your heart. You see, Jesus made it clear that giving and money and finances and generosity are all about the heart. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew 6 says it like this, verse 19. Do not lay up for treasures on earth, this is Jesus speaking, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is a lamp of the body. And so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other or will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And in that, Jesus made finances a matter of the heart and he said that your attitude towards it will affect your whole life. It's not just will affect your finances, He's saying here, it will affect your whole life. If the eye is healthy, the whole body is full of light. The whole body is healthy if the eye is healthy. But if the eye is unhealthy, then the body will be full of darkness. He's saying that actually these finances, this matter of the heart will affect your whole self, your whole being. And I believe that if we get our attitude to money and finance and generosity right, it will bring much light into other areas of your life. I believe if we get our attitude to money right, some of the other areas that aren't right in your life right now that you're struggling with will get right. I find it fascinating, all of this, as I I think about finances and and money. Just think about it for a minute. How many decisions do you uh, make based on what your finances will allow over what God has said? And depending on your answer, it will give you a clue as to which master you're serving. It will show us which master is most influential then in in our lives. You know, when I have pastoral conversations uh, about tithing, which I do from time to time, which is just giving 10% of your income, I usually find people in one of three camps. Those that just say, I won't tithe. And there's a conversation to be had there. Those who say, I can't afford to tithe. And then there are those who say, I can't afford not to tithe. The latter group are the ones who realise that they can't outgive God. 
that if they give what's God's, then they get back, pressed down, shaken together and running over, not just in terms of their finances, but in terms of their lives, because the eye is the lamp to the body. That's what Jesus is saying. And they understand that finances are a matter of the heart. And then once Jesus has your heart, then there's no way they want to restrict God's blessing to them by robbing him of what is rightfully his. That's why it's a matter of the heart. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Does love for Jesus compel you? Does it propel you? Does it make you do things that other people look at you and think, well, that's nuts. That's crazy. You see, they will think it's nuts because they don't love him like you love him. They might understand logically to some degree that we want to give our money to good causes and good things, but that's not what we're doing. We're giving because we love him. And they think you're nuts because they don't love him like you love him. When love compels you, you see things through a completely different lens. You approach situations completely differently. Let me, let me tell you a story and give you an example of that, okay? Some 31 years ago, I met a girl. Beautiful girl. She was the most beautiful girl that I had ever seen. And I was captivated. And I got to know her. I saw that she was not only just really pleasant to look at, but she was smart and she was funny. And she was just someone I just wanted to be around all the time. And in just two weeks, I fell hopelessly in love with this girl. She was in my thoughts 24-7. She was the one that I thought of when I woke up first thing, and, and she was the one that I was pondering and drifting off to sleep, thinking about at night. And I remember in these early days of dating this girl, who, just for avoidance of doubt, is Hazel. <laughs> <laughs> that could have been awkward. Um, I remember in those early days that I lived in Essex, um, Leon C, or Southend, as uh, as the locals call it, uh, and she was in, in Brighton, and uh, she was due to come up and, and stay with, with me in my parents' house for the weekend, and uh, as the week began to unfold, it began to snow, like really, really snow, uh, and it was, it was so bad, and by Friday morning, I was at work, and I got the dreaded phone call from Hazel to say that the M25 was completely shut, all the roads in the southeast were blocked, and that she wouldn't be able to get from Brighton to Essex. It was devastating. Devastating news. And uh, the reality was that my, my, my love for her just wouldn't let me rest, even at that point. My love for her was compelling me to find a way to see her. And at noon on that Friday, I remember it so well, my employer said, you all need to go home. The roads are getting really bad. You need to go home so we can just make sure that you're all home safely. And as I drove back to my parents' home, my love for Hazel just started to, to control and, and change my thinking. And as I was in the car listening to the radio, hearing about how all the traffic was snarled up, uh, a glimmer of hope 
came when they said that the railway line from Leon C to Fenchurch Street in London was running a limited service. And so in my excitement, I got home, I got all my walking gear on, I got my walking boots on, my rucksack, and I prepared to walk the two or three miles to the station. And my dad explained to me on more than one occasion during those minutes that I was a complete lunatic. My dad thought it was completely illogical, completely irrational to even attempt in this weather to get to Brighton. He was like, well, what if you get stuck in Brighton? What if you get stuck in London? And he said, look, the snow will be gone in a week. You can see her next weekend. But this love that I have was just compelling me. It was urging me. It was a love that was actually influencing and controlling my choices and decisions And so I got the only train into London, and London was a complete mess. Total gridlock. The tubes weren't even running. Now, just think that through. They are under the ground. (laughs) So I had to walk four miles from Fenchurch Street to Victoria um, to try and get to Hazel. And when I got to Victoria, the whole concourse was just full of thousands of people just sitting there on the floor. It was gridlocked. There were no trains, nothing. And I waited for hours until all of a sudden there was an announcement to say there was one train leaving from Victoria going south to Brighton. And it looked to me like the whole concourse just began to move. But let me tell you, they were not motivated like I was motivated. (laughs) I was motivated. I was pushing and shoving and ducking and diving and wheeling and dealing. I was getting on that train. And I did. And I got on the train. And eventually, after several hours of standing all the way, um, I got to Brighton. And now it was just the the few miles just to trudge from the station through the snow to get to Hazel, and then that, that amazing moment of being able to push the buzzer on her flat and go, I'm here. I am here. And I was compelled, controlled, urged by love. Dad couldn't understand because he wasn't in love like I was in love. You know, he, he, he understood that we were in love. But to him, it was still mad, illogical, impossible. Why would I do it just to be with her? The voice of logic, um, if you like, it wasn't the urging of love. And he just said, like, Why? just wait a week. But a week is a lifetime when you're 24 and you've just met the girl of your dreams. And dad just couldn't see it. Mum, on the other hand, well, she just thought it was lovely and <laughs> romantic and just, just awesome. You see, Hazel had my heart. She had all of me. I would have given all I had just to be with her. I would have spent every last penny just to get to her. And Jesus explains it like this in Matthew 13, 45. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had to buy it. 
And that's what happens when someone has your heart like that. You're compelled. You will sacrifice all of you to have that person or to have that, that thing, the object of your affection. You'll, you'll do whatever it takes. The, that person or that thing becomes the motivation of your life. And this was the kind of compelling love. This motivation to sacrifice deeply out of love. I think that's what Jesus was actually talking about when he was watching the people giving their offerings at the temple. Do you remember that story? It was this kind of compelling love that I think Jesus was, was seeing when he was watching. Luke 21, verses 1 to 4. And I'm going to read out of the, 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 uh, the Passion commentary on the Bible. Um, I think it's just very helpful. It says this, Jesus was in the temple observing all the wealthy, wanting to be noticed as they came with their offerings. He noticed a very poor widow dropping two small copper coins in the offering box. Listen to me, he said. This poor widow has given a larger offering than any of the wealthy, for the rich only gave out of their surplus. But she sacrificed out of her poverty and gave to God all that she had to live on. See, this woman, Jesus said, sacrificed out of her poverty. Other versions say that she sacrificed out of her lack. And I believe that it was this, this compelling love for God that, that she had that not only drove her to give all, all that she had, but allowed her to sacrifice all that she had because of her love for him. It motivated her to give out of her lack, not her surplus. And it seems crazy to those not in love, just like it seemed crazy for me to try and get to Hazel in Brighton. To those not in love, it just seems illogical, unrealistic, foolish even. But to those in love, as they consider the object of their love, they willingly sacrifice to gain the object of their affection. And Jesus' observation of the wealthy was that their gifts may have been fiscally more, but there was no love motivation in the gift. They gave out of their surplus. They gave without sacrifice. And the object of their affection was in fact themselves, as they considered how their giving would improve their standing before others how it uh, boosted their reputation as being someone who gives a lot. Essentially, in a religious way, it was the worship of self. It was the pursuit of their happiness as others praised them or held them in high esteem because of the size of their gift. The object of their affection, the thing that they fixed their eyes on, was themselves and the praise of men. But the woman had not only her eyes, but her heart fixed on Father God. He was the object of her affection. It was love for him that compelled him to make, or her to make a sacrifice in her giving. 
Now, often this particular piece of narrative in the Bible is used to say that small gifts are okay and we shouldn't be more impressed with big donations. And in part, I would say that's true. But for me, if we leave it there, we miss a huge part of what I think Jesus was saying. You see, this woman may have given all she had to God, but she was giving to a God who couldn't be outgiven. She actually had, even though she had no money, she had an abundance mindset. She knew that with God, she always had all that she needed. She knew him as the God of more than enough. And interestingly, even though the wealthy gave greater amounts of money, they were actually giving with a poverty mindset, a scarcity mindset. I think, well, I can, I can afford to give this bit out of my surplus. I'm not going to make any sacrifice here because actually they didn't know God as a God of more than enough. They gave from their surplus. They gave from money that they didn't need. They gave from money that was over and above their, their daily basic needs of life. There was no sacrifice at all in their giving. So even though the amount was great, it cost them nothing. And it was this that Jesus was comparing. And back in the Old Testament, King David, the king of God's people, went to a certain place in his kingdom to give a sacrifice to God. And, and when he got there, he asked the owner of the place if he could buy a piece of this man's land so he could build an altar um, and, and make a sacrifice to God. But as you can imagine, do you know what I mean? The owner of this land, as the king came, he was like, wow, this is the king of all Israel. He goes, dude, have the land. Take it. You know, actually, here's take my oxen, take the cart, use the wood to make the fire. So amazing, the king's here. He's come to make a sacrifice on my land. Of course you can have the land. Of course you can have the oxen. Of course, of course you take the wood. Take whatever you need. And this is how the king responded to Samuel 24, 24. But the king said, no, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that have cost me nothing. David refused to go through the motions of giving without a heart connection and without sacrifice. And it was his love of God that compelled him to give an offering that actually cost him something. And this was what Jesus was observing with the widow and her two pennies. He didn't compare or measure the financial amount, but he did measure and he did compare the sacrifice. He said the wealthy sacrificed nothing, but the widow sacrificed everything. So he wasn't measuring or impressed by the measure of financial amount. What he was measuring and was impressed by was the sacrifice. And we are all in very different financial positions today. Some of us are rich, some of us are poor. Some have more than we need, while others have less than they need. Some of us have jobs, some are on benefits. Some are retired with great pensions and others are retired with barely enough. Every situation 
is different. And that's okay. Because Jesus doesn't expect any of us to give equal amounts. But what he does expect is that the sacrifice we make in the giving will be equal. He expects equal sacrifice, not equal amounts. Actually, I wonder if the band could come up as I come into to land here. And church, look, the, the truth is that we will give to what we fix our eyes on. You know what they say in almost every TV cop drama? You know I like these TV cop dramas. In every single one, they always say this, follow the money. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Follow the money. I said at the start, my hope for this morning was not that I whip you up and deliver a kind of rousing, inspirational talk that motivates you to part with your money, but to set your eyes afresh on Jesus so that your love for him will compel you to generosity. Now, the purpose of my talk last week was the same, to help you fall in love again with Jesus, whose ultimate sacrifice paid the price we couldn't pay so that the favour of God will be continually and eternally upon you. What are your eyes fixed on? When you hear of gift days like today, where does your heart drift? Are you looking to your surplus to see what you can afford along with your holiday and that new car that you've got your eye on? Or are you just telling him, I'd gladly sacrifice it all. I'd gladly give it all to you. You are my pearl of great price. What would it gain me if I had everything but didn't have you? And that was the heart of this widow. Those two pennies represented her saying to God, I am all in. Her sacrifice was massive, even though the amount was small. And so as we consider this offering that we're about to take, let's consider what it is that we're giving, remembering only Jesus knows the sacrifice that your gift represents. Only Jesus knows that. Even those who count the offering, they will only see the, the, the pound amount. They'll just see the amount. They won't see the sacrifice that that amount represents. And that's the only metric to measure. And only Jesus can do that. Each one of us must give what he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Money is a matter of the heart. Generosity is a matter of sacrifice, not monetary value. It's compelled by love, not by duty. King Solomon, who was the wisest man on earth, said in Proverbs 11.24, One man freely gives, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. Jim Elliot, a missionary, once said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. 
King David said, I will not make an offering that costs me nothing. Jesus said, give and it will be given to you. The measure you use will be the measure you receive. Pressed down, shaking together and running over. The Apostle Paul said, this or the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give what he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly, under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Folks, we're starting to turn the church towards church planting. At the moment, we're still facing in the direction that we have always faced. But we've started to fix our eyes on this new direction. We're looking in the direction that we want to go, not the direction we're facing. We're about to accelerate. We're going to turn the handlebars. We're going to lean in a little bit and we're going to look where it is that we want to go. And to do those things, we need to start making some financial investments in our, in our building, getting that up to spec, getting ready for the things that we've called us to. Have we got it all sorted out? Can we answer every question? Is every I dotted? Is every T crossed? No, they're not. But our eyes are fixed in the direction of travel that he has given us. I love the lyrics of Martin Smith's new song. If you haven't heard it, I'd encourage you to listen to it. It says this, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And actually, that's my story more often than not. My eyes, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are fixed on you. We'll travel towards what our eyes are fixed on. Let's make sure our eyes are transfixed on him, that he is the object of our affection, our pearl of great price, the one who's captivated our hearts, the one whom our hearts adore and who loves us with an everlasting love. Each one must give what is decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Amen. Amen. Amen.